The preaching of God's Word is found in John's Gospel, chapter 20, and particularly verse 26. John chapter 20 and verse 26. This is John's record of a third appearance of Christ and after his resurrection. So the first he records is unto Mary. The second is unto the disciples who are in the room, the doors locked, minus Thomas. And this third is with the same group, but with Thomas present. So for the sake of some context, we'll read from verse 24 and onward. John 20 from verse 24. But Thomas, one of the twelve called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said unto him, We have seen the Lord. But he said unto them, Except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. After eight days again, his disciples were within, and Thomas with them. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace be unto you. Then saith he to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands. And reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side. And be not faithless, but believing. Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. Jesus saith unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen, and yet have believed. Many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written, that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. It's particularly there at verse 26 when Christ appears to the disciples, including Thomas, and says, as he said on an earlier occasion, those precious words once more, Jesus stood in the midst and said, Peace be unto you. It's frankly a very direct and simple statement. In the Greek, you have two words, peace, and then this one word meaning to you. It's quite intimate of a statement, in fact. It's almost shocking how forceful it comes, and yet, oh, the force, we pray, would indeed be given to us because what comes is nothing other than this intimate application of peace. The word peace, of course, is a word cherished seemingly all the world over. Now, we admit that though that's the case, it's typically cherishing a mere earthly and outward peace. And yet, there's something in that idea that is, of course, desirable and enjoyable. We ourselves have had seasons of peace nationally. In our uh, current day, our land is free of war, and we are able to go about freely in this nation for which we are grateful. But of course, Christ is not speaking of civil peace. He's not speaking of simply that kind of peace. 
because, as it were, the disciples aren't at war. The world's desire and enjoyment of the peace it seeks is a peace that quickly passes. It's a peace that is transient and unstable. So you can think of this for a moment, that in our lifetime, you know, some have known wars, but they've been distant wars. So we've had wars in the Middle East, we've had wars in Southeast Asia, and some can testify of knowing those who fought in wars in Europe and uh, in the Pacific Ocean. And so it's not that we're free of the history of warfare, but in our nation, as we consider our own place and time, it is so that we have known peace. However, all of us feel the sense of how quickly that could change. And of course, what's going on in Eastern Europe with Russia and Ukraine is a testimony of that. The threats and the seeming careless playing with the thought of nuclear warfare is a a reality that our nation takes seriously. We realize that the peace we have right now could be gone in the next minute, hour, day, and so forth. But even if it's not, think for a moment what a lifetime of peace is. It is, at best, an earthly lifetime. The Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, which spanned multiple generations, is over. It's done. That time of great and cherished peace where there was an advance of the liberal arts and many privileges that were known to many people is finished. Great empires that treasure and cherish those things are now monuments erected, as it were, to times that are past and bygone eras that shall not rise again. In our culture, more intimately concerned with ourselves, there is a prioritizing of that which will secure for our lives and perhaps our children the means to secure protection, health, strength, and generally speaking, peace. And so you hear superstar athletes signing contracts and the people that will comment on them will speak of that's generational wealth. What contract they've signed is something that will secure, humanly speaking, provision for many generations to come. And why is that desired? Well, even as the scriptures say, money answereth all things. There is a problem, and many of the times that such problems arise, money can answer it. Well, put yourself in the shoes of one who signs a contract or who gets such a job as that multiple millions of dollars are being put into your bank account. And the reality is, sooner or later, the effect of that wealth will no longer be realized. Sooner or later, multi-billionaires will breathe their last and their life will come to its end. Now, why do we labor this point? Because the peace which the world craves is misguided. It's something that is as the Scriptures speak of life, a vapor, which is for a moment, but vanishes the next. It's not that we aren't thankful for it, or pray for it, or labor for it, but if that's what we live for, we need to reckon with this. We live for vanity. 
it will come to an end, will be upended, and ultimately will vanish. However, this doesn't mean that the desire is altogether off. What it is, is it's short-sighted. It's looking too close instead of out to the horizon. It's looking too near instead of to consider the whole scope of what's going on. The wars and rumors of wars, the diseases, the destructions, the storms that have passed through our own nation in recent time, all of the afflictions that we know individually are but ripples that have come from a disastrous strife that is inflicted by sin. The source of all of the strife and warfare, the source of all the unease and difficulty, the source of all of our own soul's issues, in one way or another, are intimately associated with the reality of sin. Now we can glean from this, in this own passage, that fact. You can see for a moment the disciples, where are they? Well, they are with the doors shut. Verse 19, you'll notice, the first time this is mentioned, it's that they're shut and they're assembled for fear of the Jews. The Jews, of course, despise the people of Christ because they despise Christ. Now, these disciples, we need to remember, are Jews. So this isn't a racial statement. It's a statement regarding those Jews who are unbelieving. It's not saying Jews are bad and others are good. It's rather distinguishing between the unbelieving people and the believing people who are following Christ. And those unbelieving Jews have led the course for the putting to death of the Lord Jesus. Murder is fundamental to what's taken place. His blood, they say, be upon us and upon our children. They knew, of course, that Christ was innocent, and yet they raised up and trumped up charges against Him that He should be put to death. They despised the righteous one. And their despising didn't end with Christ. A few short pages turned and you come to the book of Acts, which will chronicle persecutional waves that arise and stand against the cause of Christ. Sin is everywhere. But it's also closer than that. You can see it in this one particular disciple, Thomas. I don't mean that he's an unbeliever, quite the contrary. But we see him struggle, don't we? When he says, not having been present, except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. Thomas is overcome with this season of unbelief, and his soul is not at rest. Part of it's because he saw the brutal crucifixion of Christ. It is, in the Lord's providence, a great provision to us to see the reality of the crucifixion by looking at Thomas's response. He sees what Christ suffered. He then hears the report of the disciples and says, you've got to be kidding me. You think I'm going to believe what you're saying? I saw what happened. 
I saw him on the cross. I heard his groaning. I saw the spear thrust into his side and the blood and water come out. I saw his lifeless body taken down. I saw it all. He was dead. He must still be dead. You all are causing me to lose my mind, to think that I'll believe what you're saying. Thomas is living by sight. There's sin in Thomas. There's sin all around, and there's turmoil because of it. But notice Christ's words. He comes to his few, his weak, and his struggling disciples, and he says, peace be unto you. In this particular, there is a great comfort to all disciples. Because you'll notice, it's not the disciples in their strength, in their multitude. It's not the disciples in their noble virtues being lived before the world. It's His disciples in their fewness of number. It's His disciples in their great overwhelming fear. It's the disciples mixed with unbelief. And yet Christ's words of greeting proclaim peace. The risen Christ who suffered on the cross, comes to His disciples and He says, here's my message, here's my declaration, here's my provision to you, that you would have peace from Me. So we want to consider these simple words, peace be unto you, that it is Christ who supplies this peace. It's not insignificant who it is that proclaims it. And it's a point of emphasis, verse 19, then came Jesus and stood in their midst, and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. Notice again, this is said in verse 21, Then said Jesus to them again, Peace be unto you. And finally in our verse, verse 26, Then came Jesus and said, Peace be unto you. Why is this emphasis provided? Why is there such a continual focus on the fact that it's Jesus who's proclaiming peace? Well, it's, of course, not to be a surprise to us. It's the one who has made peace by His cross. It's the one whose blood has purchased our forgiveness and peace, who is now coming, declaring the peace which He's purchased, and saying, it's yours. Peace to you. You'll see in the English that the word be is supplied to help make sense of the English, of the Greek, rather, into English. But in the Greek, it's far more direct. Peace unto you. It's almost as if the image of, if you could think of a, uh, uh, the substance of peace, of course, which is a thought and uh, a provision, but the substance is now thrown on them. It's yours, peace to you. And it's being proclaimed by the One who is our peace. Brethren, what this reminds us is that it's the risen Lord who alone gives true peace. There's tremendous help in this for a number of reasons, not least of which is by considering both what that peace is and to whom that peace is given. We gather this evening and we're few in number. We can count on two hands you know, the people that are here. In many ways, we can figure out, of course, that we aren't a multitude we aren't uh, a great mass of people. 
And that can be, to some, in some ways, a discouragement. We can wonder, well, what's going on? You know, this is a difficulty. We can look around and say, you know, no one here has influence. We can look around and say, you know, I know myself and I must know what's in other people. There's weak people here. I'm weak. They're weak. I face temptation. They face temptation. I know I've sinned. Perhaps this week that is coming to an end, as we've been preparing for the Lord's Supper, we've seen and underscored and circled certain temptations and sins that we have seen and underscored and circled on previous occasions as well. And we wonder, what hope is there for me? Or perhaps on the other hand, there are those who say, you know, I thought I was doing pretty well. And I wanted pats on the back. And then I, by God's appointment, opened up God's Word, meditated upon His Word, and I discovered there are things about me that are, in no other way to say it, ugly in the sight of God. What hope do I have? Well, brethren, none of those things, of course, are to be excused in any easy terms. But here is the hope for all believers. The risen Christ who has made atonement for our sins, comes and declares peace. So consider then two things. Firstly, the peace that Christ gives. And secondly, the people to whom He gives it. The peace He gives and the people to whom He gives it. As to the first, the peace Christ gives, the word is fairly generic. Peace. He says, peace be still to the storm and the waves are calmed. He now says peace to his people. It's a word, of course, that is the opposite of all fear, of all strife, of all unsettledness, whether that is of natural things as wind and waves, of earthquakes, which are unsettled states, or of spiritual experience, a conscience that is inflamed with conviction a mind that is unsettled and wavering in its commitment. These things are unstable. There's strife and fear and enmity that may be faced. Well, peace is opposite, and it's the statement of that needs to be finished. The reality of peace is a settled state. The waves aren't overturning the boat. The wave, the water becomes as glass. The mind isn't going this way and that and confused and dust is going everywhere else as it were spiritually, but there is a perfect state of rest. Well, consider then what this peace is that Christ gives. We have no hesitation in looking at the Scriptures that this is not just a kind greeting. It's not like you and I coming together and saying, hey, how are you? Now, we acknowledge that today it has become something of mere formality. And so there are some traditions, you'll see this more often, not outside our own, where there will be a greeting from a pastor or a fellow Christian that says, peace in Jesus Christ. Now, we don't criticize that, but we do acknowledge that it can become formulaic. It can become something that is no different than a hello or goodbye. But this is not Christ saying, hello, It's his pronouncing what he's pronounced before with greater clarity. Notice, for instance, in the Gospel of John, you have this expression provided in John chapter 14, 
when Christ, of course, pronounces peace to his people. He says in verse 27, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. It's a beautiful expression because it tells us in his explanation what he's targeting. He's targeting the heart of his disciples. And it's his peace that he's giving. It's the peace from Christ, in other words. This is one way of speaking of the peace that God gives. It's the peace that comes from him. And now you have the victorious, the earlier put-to-death sacrificial lamb is now alive. Remember, as Paul speaks of this elsewhere, that the resurrection declared him to be the Son of God with power. It didn't make him the Son of God, but it showed forth that he is that Son. And moreover, it showed forth that his sacrifice was well-pleasing in the sight of God. And so Christ, having procured that redemption, now comes and proclaims it unto us. Now this is important because of its fundamental impact. He's testifying that He brings peace to us. What peace? Well, we read earlier of this very thing in Ephesians chapter 2. Notice the importance and the relevance of how Paul expresses it in that chapter. Ephesians chapter 2, it speaks of Christ, verse 13, that in Him, ye who sometimes were afar off, are made nigh by the blood of Christ, for He is our peace. It's Christ who is our peace. Notice, peace, in other words, is not something abstracted from Christ to which He's pointing. It's actually in Christ. It is Christ. Christ is the peace. And what He presents Himself to His people in these terms, He's actually presenting His peace Himself. He's made the peace with God. And Paul makes this point quite clearly when he says that we're made nigh by the blood of Christ. It speaks of His abolishing in His flesh. Notice His body. He has abolished that enmity of the law of commandments and so on. He's made peace. Verse 16, that He might reconcile both, that is Jew and Gentile, unto God. So the peace that is forefront in the mind of the Apostle is that peace that settles the enmity that was between us and God. We think of an enemy. An enemy is one who is at enmity with us. But notice, he speaks of the enmity. In some sense, such is our wickedness that it is the concrete abstraction. Sounds like a contradiction, of course, but the idea is our sin is utter enmity so that we are now enemies of God. This is what Paul has said earlier, of course, in verses 1-3 through in our way of life outside of Christ. But now in Christ, by His blood, by His death, what has He done? He's made peace. He is our peace. And He reconciles us unto God. But notice verse 17. Still speaking of Christ we read, and came and preached peace to you. 
Now, we don't mean, and Paul doesn't mean, that the person of Christ incarnate stood in the local presence of the Ephesians and preached peace. But what he is saying is that when the Gospel is preached, Christ is preaching through the Gospel. The proclamation is ultimately from Christ. Just as we can speak, and yet this is inferior to the full reality of what's true of Christ, of a civil ambassador relaying the message of a government or of a king, and if they reject that word, they're rejecting the king, we can speak in a far greater way that when the Gospel is preached unto sinners, it's Christ proclaiming the terms of peace which He has accomplished, saying, I am your peace. Come to Me and be reconciled to God. This is nothing about unlimited atonement. It's rather Him saying, if you want peace with God, you must have Me. Here I am. He flings the door open and says, I am the way of peace. There is but one who is the way of peace. And it is I, Christ would say. Romans 5.1, of course, we know, having been justified, we have peace with God. How are we justified? By the blood of Christ Jesus. By righteousness and by faith in Christ Jesus. Our sin has made us enemies of God. God, in His justice, demands satisfaction for our sins. Here's the beauty of what Christ has done, which we hope to consider more fully tomorrow as the Lord gives us opportunity. He makes the payment for us. And now He comes to His disciples and says, the payment's been made. Peace unto you. Brethren, this is the fundamental. This is the part that the world doesn't understand. When we talk about the world has instincts that may in some sense be reckoned right, they want peace, yet their instincts are corrupt and short-sighted. Really all that the world wants is a season of no disturbing of their desires. And so you hear this in little ways, you know, live and let live. Uh, you know, uh, you know, you do you and stay in your lane. All of these ways the world speaks are fundamentally about saying, you let me be. I want to live my life the way I want to live it. I'll just let you live your life the way you want to live it. You see, the world is focused on our way of life, having our desires. And sometimes we even hear nations speak of this. Well, they're against our nation's way of life or that nation's against that nation's way of life, or whatever it is. But what you don't hear is this notion of the whole world is wrecked. The whole world is in distress. The whole world is in disturbance. All of these things are testimonies as you look out on the sea and you see white-capped waves turning over. It's a sign of a greater disturbance than that wave. The wave is a symptom The world looks at the symptoms as if that's the issue, when really what we're seeing in the Scriptures is those issues are but symptoms of the issue, which is the fact that God and man are enemies. It's the Christian who has come to see the root cause. Of course, by God's grace, it's this Gospel in John 3 that talks about our eyes being open, except a man be born again. He cannot see the kingdom of God, except a man be 
born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. We realize this. The Christian is the one whose eyes have been opened to see above, as it were, to see the cause of it. And the cause is our own reflection. We're the cause of this problem. And we're linked together in the cause of this problem because we stand united in Adam as sinners. And God looks at us and says, you will pay. And that's not unjust. It's not petty. It's justice being served. But Christ undertakes to fulfill that justice so that by His death, by His sacrifice, He establishes what is peace with God. And thus He proclaims Himself and provides Himself that by Christ we should have peace. Notice something for a moment. The peace with God is indivisible from Christ. Though we can talk of peace with God as a doctrine, yet the experience of it is found in faith holding Christ. Faith knowing Christ. It's astounding, isn't it? How clear it is in our text. Thomas has no peace. You can actually sort of hear it in the words. Uh, We don't know how he said it, but we can see the words and they communicate quite plainly how forceful he is, except I see in his hands the print of the nails. Can't you hear the frustration in that? This is the one I trusted in. I've given all for this one. I've forsaken house and home. I've forsaken this relationship and that. I followed him for three years. And I thought he was the Christ. Peter, when you stood up and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Thou hast the words of eternal life. To whom shall we go? I was there with you, Peter. And I was saying, I agree. But now I saw him dead. I saw him brutally defeated. I saw his lifeless body put into the tomb. And you want me to get my hopes up about this? I'll tell you what, Peter. I'll tell you what other disciples. I'll believe him when I see the print in his hands and this finger pushes into the wound, when this hand enters into his side. Don't bother me with this. You see, Thomas is distressed, understandably, when we see the context. Remember Peter, who just hours before had denied Christ three times? What's the point? Well, don't we see our own reflection in Peter's face? And don't we see our own reflection in the face of Thomas in various ways? We see our caving into temptation. We see the things in this world and they overwhelm our trust in His Word. You see, the disciples needed the knowledge of the fundamental peace. They didn't first need the things around them fixed. They needed first the fundamental knowledge of the peace Christ has purchased for them with God. And furthermore, this peace that Christ gives then sustains in all trials. Trials unsettle us, but Christ's peace establishes us. So you'll notice the first time He appears to the disciples, 
it mentions particularly that they're assembled for fear of the Jews. So the door's shut. There they are, not knowing what, when, how, what will happen next, and what they're supposed to do. Their whole plan has been upended. The one they were following is now dead. They're marked men, and they're put together in fear. But Christ comes and says, Peace unto you. And now they're encouraged as they go and find Thomas, and they tell him, but Thomas is still unsettled, and so they're gathered together, not insignificantly, as verse 26 indicates, on the Lord's Day, eight days again. That is the first day of the week they're gathered, Christ appears, and then the week passes. On the first day of the week they're gathered again, Christ appears and says, Peace. What is he doing? By articulating what he's purchased for them, He's strengthening them against every trial they'll face. You see this in the apostles' lives as they're unfolded in the book of Acts. You see it in the life of the apostle Paul. How is it that Paul and Silas are, after being rudely treated, put into shackles, imprisoned, how is it they're able to sing hymns of praise unto Christ? It's because they're able to sing his psalms of praise because of the peace they have with Christ. It's the same thing that sustained the martyrs in the most brutal and bloody of persecutions. They knew they had peace with Christ, peace with God by Christ. This is what Christ has already stated in John chapter 16 when he says in verse 32, "...the hour cometh, yea, is now come, that ye shall be scattered." Every man to his own, and shall leave me alone, yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. Speaking of his trial and his crucifixion. Notice, these things I have spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. You see, He's applying the peace He gives to strengthen them amid all of the trials that comes to them. Brethren, you've faced, doubtlessly, trials already, some of which have left the equivalent of scars upon your soul. And those will remain until the day of Christ Jesus. I hesitate to say that it's quite likely that each of us will face further trials, some perhaps greater than the trials you've known thus far. Now, before that causing us to say, well, what's the point then? Why should I press on? Here's the answer. Because Christ is our peace. Christ sustains us. Christ reminds us we have peace with God. The trials that fall upon us as believers are not some, as it were, uh, uh, cosmic sign that the gods are angry with us, but rather we realize that even in these things, as Paul says, we are more than conquerors through Him that loved us, Him that gave Himself for us. When we know that we have by Christ immutable, enduring, and true peace with God, as we cleave to Christ, we have the ability by Him, to overcome the trials of this life. Notice, secondly, then, the people to whom Christ gives peace. 
says simply, as you'll see it, peace unto you who is represented. Well, verse 19 tells us that it's the disciples who were assembled to whom Christ says, peace unto you. And then in verse 24, Thomas is mentioned as not being there. So it's, we know this, it's not Judas. Judas is dead. The disciples would have included whom we know as the eleven, but Thomas wasn't there in the first, so you have ten. It's likely the case that you have Mary Magdalene, because she's mentioned verse 18. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord. It's not guaranteed. Maybe she's left at that time. But it's a small group of disciples. But notice just this simple point. He proclaims peace as the possession of his disciples. Who are the disciples? We don't just mean the apostles, but we mean those who have, as Christ said, left all and followed him. You remember, as was mentioned earlier, that when some of those who followed Christ turned aside, he turned to those that remain and he asked the question, will you also go? And what a blessed statement is recorded for us in John chapter 6 at verse 66, when we read, From that time many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Then said Jesus unto the twelve, Will ye also go away? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. We believe and are sure that thou art that Christ, the Son of the living God. It's a beautiful confession of faith, a statement of trust. It's stronger in word than it was in possession, but it was sincerely the expression of faith by Simon Peter. And it was representative of the other disciples minus Judas, who was singled out by Christ as one who was a devil, which he spake of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for he it was that should betray him, being one of the twelve. But of the others, the eleven minus, the twelve minus Judas, They were those who were holding to Christ. They were trusting in Christ. Here's the point. His disciples are those who hold to Christ. Thomas is struggling. Thomas is weak. It doesn't mean Thomas is an unbeliever in the true and fullest sense of the word, but it does mean that his faith is weak just as Peter's was. But his disciples, his believing people, are those to whom Christ says, peace is yours. I am yours, and therefore peace is yours. Notice further, it's his few disciples. This is of encouragement to us. We think of the privilege of being in large assemblies, and oh, how our hearts are overwhelmed at times when we hear in the Lord's outpouring of grace in certain generations and to certain people that whole buildings were filled with men, women, and children to hear the preaching of God's Word. We long for those days and it strengthens our souls. We love to go to things like the conferences that we're privileged to attend or other congregations and remind ourselves that we have others who hold to Christ. But brethren, here's the point. Our peace is not by the numbers with whom we assemble. Our peace is not made up by the many voices we hear in some space. Our peace is not found by the brothers and sisters whom we so cherish, love, and delight in 
when we're with them. Our peace is not found from other Christians. Our peace is found from Christ. Christ gives it to His few disciples. He finds them. He pursues them. And He provides it to them. Moreover, even to His weak and fearful disciples, oh, how great is our need to know the peace of Christ when we're overwhelmed with struggles. Here they're overwhelmed. And Christ comes and declares it to them. Perhaps it is in your own life. At present, you find circumstances which make your soul feel the unease of uncertainty, of relational difficulty, and other such trials. Perhaps at times your mind gets carried away with the what-ifs of the future. What if I get sick? What if my spouse dies? What if this happens? What if the job crumbles? What if our nation is toppled? What if everything uh, goes south, as we say? What if? We become fearful. Here, Christ comes to us as fearful disciples and He pronounces peace that He's purchased for us. Who's in that number of fearful disciples? Peter's in that number. The very one who denied Christ three times. But you remember that though Peter's sin was more egregious than others, As Christ said earlier, it came to pass that when the shepherd was smitten, the sheep fled. They all turned aside from him. They all stood back from him. And so these who, at the moment of his greatest misery, turned away are the ones to whom Christ comes and says, here's what I have for you. Would you worry if Christ were to call and summon you and say, I've got something for you. Would you be fearful to think, oh, what could it be? Oh, what I've done. Oh, my sins. Oh, my wickedness. Oh, my weakness. Oh, my failures. I don't deny those things, and Christ doesn't deny them either. But what He does do is He comes and says, look what I've done and procured for you. Peace unto you. Notice it's even His openly doubting disciples as Thomas is now isolated by name. Verse 26, again, his disciples were within and Thomas with them. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said to the other disciples, no, it doesn't say that, does it? It doesn't say he said this to the others and not to Thomas. It says he said to them, including Thomas, Peace be unto you. Now, he doesn't leave Thomas in his state. He doesn't cater to Thomas's weakness. He reproves Thomas. But he also does so in peaceful terms. Peace be unto you, he says first. Then he turns to Thomas and says, here's my hand, Thomas. Put your finger here. Here's my side, Thomas. Put your hand there. This isn't the reproof of cruelty and mockery. This is His reproving that humbles, and yet in humbling, it heals. And Thomas is brought to say, My Lord and my God. Do you remember how Paul says, 
the kindness of God is meant to lead us to repentance. What is it that leads Thomas to repentance? It's not Christ coming to Thomas and berating him. It's not Christ coming to Thomas and saying, you fool, you idiot, I can't believe all these things. He comes first with a declaration of peace. And then he addresses the weakness and sin of Thomas. But from that, he targets what Thomas utters, my Lord and my God. And then he says what comforts us all, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. In that word, he's linking us with the peace proclaimed. They who haven't seen but do believe are blessed. You have seen me and believed. They that see me not and believe are blessed with all my people. Brethren, here's the point. We ought not to think that the peace of Christ is proclaimed to us in the heights of our attainments. Because Christ comes to us in the depths of our weakness and proclaims Himself as our peace. This has nothing to do and it caters nothing to the continuance in our sin. It is a testimony rather of the great grace of Christ that is meant to meet us in our weakness and draw us up in greater testimony of faith and diligence of service. It's astounding, isn't it? That of these few that are assembled, the overwhelming majority would later give their lives for Christ. Isn't that a thought to think? And yet what's striking is they who are here gathered in fear, cowering because they saw their Savior crucified, and now they fear the Jews, having seen their risen Savior seemingly grow fearless to face all of the cruelties of the world and count their souls blessed in giving up their lives in testimony of Christ. Why? Why were they able to do that? It's not because they were of greater stuff than you and I. It's not because their education was superior to yours and mine. It's because they had seen Christ. But more than that, they had received the peace that Christ gives. You see, brethren, your temptations will fundamentally point out this question. If I take away your earthly, your relational, your emotional peace, will you be okay with it? Here's what the Christian says. That'll be painful. That'll cause tears to stream from my face. That may elicit shouts of agony from my mouth. But here's the thing. You can't take my peace. Because my peace is Christ Jesus. You can take a lot of things. You can take my health. You can take my comfort. You can take my home. You can take my friends. You can take my family, my spouse, my children, my well-being. You can take my life. You can take all of these things. But what you can't take from me is the peace which Christ has purchased. And though this life is turned upside down, the life which Christ has procured for me is a life that will continue for all eternity. 
Well, brethren, if you are a believer, perhaps it is as indicated, you've searched out and discovered something of like unbelief that Thomas had. Maybe something has so overturned your world that you say, except I see a change, I'm not going to believe. I can't stand it anymore. We have need to hear the risen and ascended now, Christ say, peace unto you. This is what he said, not only to these disciples, but remember as Paul said in Ephesians 2, you Ephesians, he came and preached peace to you. And so it is for us. But furthermore, we have need to embrace that peace as in Christ. Our souls have discovered sin, and we with our shame become unstable. What is the need we have? It's to look again to Christ and see Him as our peace. Perhaps it is this week has been highly favored by God and you have discovered this peace and your soul has been elated with joy. Well, your need is to then thank God for that. Not just for this momentary supply or lasting supply should the Lord so sustain it. But you need to thank God for the cause of that peace, which is not your repentance, which is not your prayer, which is not your obedience. The cause of your peace, if peace indeed, is the person and work of Christ Jesus. So as we prepare to come to the table tomorrow, let us answer all of the unstable realities of our lives with the fact that Christ has paid for our sins, that Christ has spoken peace to us, and that Christ who calls us to the table does not call us to make peace with God first, but calls us because He has established peace with God already. Would you stand with me then for prayer?